Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, Opera America has released its list of the 25 most performed operas in America during the 2017-18 season. We take a deep dive into the rankings to see if there's any surprises. But first, nope, not first. After that, the Bavarian State Opera recently announced its 2019-2020 season. It's going to become the first international house to go under the microscope that is the Dodson scale. Find out where the company ranks alongside its Yankee counterparts. Plus, two-minute drill. You're going to get our hot takes on everything you need to know from Operaland in the past week. Of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. Tweet us at Opera Box Score. Post on our Facebook page as well. It is really quiet around here in studio. Oh, yes. Uh, all of the uh, students who we ordinarily share our studio with for some reason are all on spring break. Thank you, Weston, yeah. for enlightening everybody. Uh, it's going to be a little louder because Matt, Cummings is well, also here. There haven't <laughs> been students around here for 20 years. Ooh. Those have been ghosts, young man. <laughs> why, 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 what's up with the accent, dude? I, I don't know. I had a funny story to tell. Did mm. you really? <laughs> I'm thinking next week <laughs> for the April so. Fool show, we're all going to do the entire show in the accent that we were raised on. Ooh, I do declare. Oh my goodness! I, I, I didn't. I didn't actually. Next week, Weston. <laughs> next. Okay, okay, I'll keep practicing. Week, week ahead, not a ton of sports happening right now. Of course, the NCAA basketball tournament is ongoing. No real upsets. Uh, sadly, Tobias is not in studio tonight, so I can't tease him that his Kansas Jayhawks are. Like out. Toby, the Jayhawks are out. We'll all be studio. pouring one out as well. <laughs> we all will be pouring one out for him as well. For that, yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, let us talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us tonight. Opera Box Score, WNUR, 89.3 FM and HD. Every year, Opera America, the advocacy organization for opera in the U.S., releases a list of the past season's 25 most performed operas. We're going to take a look at those in reverse order. It's going to let you, our listeners, try and guess what is at the top of the list? We'll get to those towards <laughs> the end of this first segment. There are definitely some surprises. This yes. is true. That's in very this. true. Uh, I think uh, if you look at the bottom of the list, I think one of the sort of semi-surprises to me is kind of down there. At number 25, we have uh, Don Pasquale. Um, Donizetti. Yeah, yeah Donizetti. Donizetti. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I think it's been kind of having a bit of a, a moment over the past few years. It, it's also a, an opera that doesn't take very much to put on. True. You really, you need four singers and a tiny, tiny chorus that's barely in it. Granted, you need four really great singers because the music is incredibly difficult, really mm. even more difficult than a lot of the other famous opera operatic comedies. But it is a, an opera that kind of... Uh, puts itself on in a way as long as you get sure. people who can sing it. There's I, there's not too much else you can do with it other than a straightforward comedic greeting card. 
I think it's also that's kind of one of the running themes of this list. Uh, like if you jump up to uh, number twenty-two, Mary Widow, that's also one that doesn't feel like you don't have to put a bunch of resources into that. It's well, a, you need fancy dresses and you dancers. Need fancy but dresses, but though you can find a fancy dress. I could find a da- fancy dress right now. I could go. I could go out and go to Target and get one. That's um, the point, man. You do it as they're all hipsters, and then they're wearing like beautiful street clothes. I'm not saying they're cheap. <laughs> I'm just they don't have to be. Fancy dresses. Of course, you skipped over uh, Gunos, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Beethoven, Fidelio, and then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mary Widow there. I, I assume they're see. saying um, Mary Widow where the songs would be in German and the dialogues would be in English. Uh, a lot, or sometimes just sung in English, too. But Yeah, uh, that's definitely one of the ones where you can kind of get away with it because it's it's it's... It's, I mean, it's an operetta. It's so close to being a musical. You can kind of do whatever and you want. And it's very cosmopolitan in nature, so the right. language switch doesn't really... Because it's very... It's goofy. It's silly. It's got some big hit tunes, like the Vilia lead that the, the lead soprano sings in the middle, a couple, a couple really cute duets. Uh, the Waltz is a pretty famous tune that you finally get toward the end of the opera. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, and it doesn't have a lot of the sort of the baggage associated with a lot of the big war horses that you would uh, that are also on this list. Um, so you can be a little bit more flexible with it and be a little more creative if you're a smaller company that's just trying some other stuff. And if you move up the list, we've got uh, another Donizetti, Lucia di Lammermoor, and uh, uh, Aida by Verdi, and Norma by Bellini. And Norm- all- Norma, I'll stop you at, because that right. one actually did surprise me that so many people are doing it, because it is notorious for being like a... Mount Everest of roles. Sure. You really, there's one, maybe one and a half roles that you care about in Norma because the (laughs) men are really not that interesting. Uh, Adelgisa barely has a moment to herself on stage. She mostly mostly sings in duets with Norma. But Norma, there are singers that have made their bones on being able to sing Norma when no one else can. Not least Joan Sutherland. (laughs) And I would say that probably part of the reason that this might be on there is because Sandra Radvanovsky has kind of been taking on that mantle as someone who can sing that kind of stuff right. for, the, for the last couple of years. And also the, the orchestral forces are, I mean, it's, it's not Wagner. You know, you, you can get away with a little bit less Wagner there. really liked that opera, he though, did. famously. He did. Uh, one of the few things that Wagner liked that wasn't uh, himself. himself. <laughs> you can say uh, Moving up, we've got uh, uh, Tenerentula in the number 18 slot. Rossini. Uh, Rossini. Yep. And then we have uh, Mozart on number 17 with Cosi Fantute, Big Shock. Oh, oh, no. And then we get to number 16. And I think this one is the weird outlier uh, as far as I'm concerned, we have uh, Piazzolla's uh, Maria de Buenos Aires, which is the only Spanish opera on this list, I might add. Um, if you don't know what it is, uh, it was originally, uh, it's a tango opera uh, because it's Piazzolla. And that's literally all he did. Uh, and it's, uh, it was originally and it's most popular. Compo- in, yes, true. In, he's an Argentinian composer, and that's right. a, a style that is very important to him to, exactly to, to him and his people historically and i think it really works out uh, well uh, uh dramatically speaking but it's also interestingly enough uh, uh it was originally written for radio um so there's a lot of like uh, dialogue um and narration and things like that there's lots of you know uh breaks where it, it's very separate there's not a lot of unity in terms it's not like continuous melody in the manner of wagner or even in the traditional uh, aria recitative style. And, and it's a pretty gritty story, which right, I think yeah. might be part of the reason why it is having a, 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 a vogue is because I, I think that uh, when peop- a lot of people, younger people, want to go to the opera and they want to see something weird. They want to see something <laughs> a little bit non-traditional because there's so much out in pop culture about it being fancy, about it being out of touch, about it being uh, just too much. And whether or not that's fair is like a, is another matter. But and this is a, sh- a piece that like sets itself up to be weird and kooky. Not least having an opera that is in the Spanish language is automatically Absolutely. going to set it apart from the other 24 pieces on this list and probably 99% of the repertoire. It's a smart choice. I'm excited to see it in the top 25, although, as Weston said, I am surprised as well. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. We're working our way up the list of the 25 most performed operas in the 2017-2018 season. Number 15, we've got L'Elysia d'Amour, 
Um, kind of, yeah, kind of the same story with Don Pasquale there yeah. for me. It's an opera where you got five good singers, you put them on a stage, it does itself. Number 14 is also kind of a weird one. Um, the teens are all where the, all the surprises are for me, I think. Uh, number You're 14. talking from personal experience. Your teens <laughs> yeah, were full of surprises, You Weston. know, I was going through lots of changes. I was getting Oh, taller. I thought you meant the teenagers that you have at home. <laughs> oh, no. We don't talk about that on the air. Um, but, yeah, on a different note, the <laughs> number 14 here is uh, Gluk. Uh, with his Orpheus and Eurydice, um, which is an interesting one. Again, another one that I think has been kind of gaining steam over the past couple of years in terms of popularity, but still not one I would expect to be in the top 25. I, I always say that I think of Gluck as an important composer, but one I don't really want to listen to exactly. very much. Uh, his, his music kind of spanned the the decades between, the, you know, you're, you got your high Baroque, like your Handel, and you got your Mozart, and Gluck was the bridge from one to the other, essentially. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what he did was take out the excess of Baroque opera, and so it makes it a little bit boring. But there was a... I'm wondering... I'm betting that a lot of these performances are from the Chicago Lyric and Joffrey Ballet right uh, production of this that that added in a lot of really spectacular dancing that and that performed both at Chicago and then uh, was taken over to Los Angeles Opera as well. Yep. And so that that's got to be running up their ta- their talia a lot higher than you would expect because Gluck doesn't get done too much in a uh, in the major houses these days. And then we have number thirteen, lucky thirteen. <laughs> We've got Leonard Lenny. Good old Lenny uh, with uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, for those of you who couldn't read between the lines on that one, uh, with uh, his uh, Candide operetta, whatever that is. Well, it's a hangover from the Bernstein centenary yep. yeah, year, you, absolutely. Of you couldn't look at a summer festival without stumbling over Candide. It's absolutely true, and I guarantee you, you will not see that opera on this list uh, probably ever again, don't you think? Certainly not top 20. Possibly again this year for the ones who missed the boat right. on right. the on the first go-round of the Lenny and Centenary. And then once we hit uh, 150, I'm sure he'll yeah. be back up there. Uh, and then um, after that we have um, good old Mozart again with Die Zauberflute. Not or, a surprise. Or the magic flute. Uh, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh, thank you. I didn't know what I was saying. <laughs> and then number 11, we kind of have kind of a, an interesting one. I believe this is two years in a row now for this one. I believe that's As I recall. Correct. A repeat. Um, as one by, oh, shoot, what was the composer? Laura, Laura Kaminsky. Kaminsky. Exactly. Libretto uh, by Mark Campbell. Yes. Uh, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the only one on the list that's in English. It. Unless you're doing Mary Widow. Oh, right yeah, unless you're, doing, unless you're doing the others in translation. Oh, and be... Candide, which I literally just said um but as one of course is is really interesting it's about uh, uh, a transgender lgbt themes uh which is always interesting and it's also a new opera which is fascinating to me that uh, a new opera lands so high on the list um so consistently i think it's very exciting here's why this opera just edges outside of the top 10 because of the way it is built. So Opera America is basing these stats not on universities and schools of music, but right. you know the 150, say, professional opera companies in America. The vast majority of those companies are what you would call like a tier three, four, or five budgets that are under $3 million. Here's a piece that has absolutely got its finger on the pulse of the, the second decade in American history. It's written for a string quartet. It's got two singers in it. It is built to be done time and time again by mid to small opera companies Mm. as well as at schools of music. So it it earns every digit on this list. Will it break the top 10, Matt? Maybe eventually, but uh, I have a hard time believing that any of them that are in the top 10 are are going anywhere anytime soon because it's looked pretty Dissimilar for about as long as I can remember. It has. Yeah. Let me just say it out loud. There were more productions of As One in the United States last year than The Magic Flute by Mozart. That is absolutely nuts to me. Yeah, when you when you phrase it that way, it really puts into perspective how great of an accomplishment that is for the for the creative team and for all the companies that are taking a risk on something that is new. And right, you, even absolutely. though it's popular, it's still new. And so many new operas never even get a second production or a third production. Uh, and and for this one to just keep uh, resonating with audiences time and time again is says something really powerful, I think, about how well the work is built and what it has and how important what it has to say is. I, moving on to sort of the top ten, I'm going to kind of fire him off here. Uh, we have in number ten, we got Don Giovanni Mozart. Not a big surprise. 
Number nine, Turandot. I mean, it's Puccini, so not a huge surprise, but a little interesting considering the 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 casting that you need. To Again, block in a, there are so few Turandots in a in a given generation. I mean, you in the you, even the highest level performances of this opera, you kind of listen to them sometimes and wonder why they're doing it instead <laughs> of one that we, would sound better. Uh, and then going up beyond that, I think there are no more surprises, at least as far as I'm concerned. Number eight, we got Madame Butterfly, also Puccini. Uh, number seven, uh, Marriage of Figaro. Um, uh, number six, we got Tosca. Number five, Carmen. Stop me if you've heard this before. Number four, Rigoletto. Three, Bohem. Two, Traviata. Stop right there. <gasps> Great. So this is interesting because I, the reason As One was so high up to me is that it, it doesn't have this chorus, right? Like you're avoiding right. Aida is just at the top 20. Lucia has got a chorus. But then you get into these big shows here, Traviata, chorus, Bohem, chorus, Rigoletto, chorus. So who was doing these shows in a tier two or a tier three house? They can do them well and can afford a chorus. Well, a lot of them are because that's what's going to sell the most tickets. Right. That's what's going to bring in the audiences who maybe, who maybe have heard of these operas, who have seen them. They're they're among the most popular. They're they're among the most visible operas in pop culture, and so uh, it's a name that means something. It's a name that you, even if you don't know very much about much about opera, it's a name that you've heard before, and so it doesn't feel as risky. To, you know, I'm thinking of people, honestly, like my parents, who have who have really only been to an opera that I was in, but did go to see Traviata at Pittsburgh Opera, sure. uh, be, and 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 really enjoyed it, but didn't didn't know what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, it, it's these are these are uh, the top ten basically are all the ones that have basically. I mean, they they've all switched places and maybe they've dipped down to the fifteens and all, but these have all been sort of the top ten more or less in the U.S. for the past. Probably since World War II. Before uh, we get to number one, again, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. You can call us. Let us know what's missing from the list, 847-866-9687. Here's what I'm surprised. Again, Weston, before we let you reveal, reveal number one. the most produced opera <laughs> in 2017, 2018. You might be able to have guessed it by now. Where's Benjamin Britten? <laughs> and why isn't he on this top 25 That's, a very That's honestly George what I ask question. myself every day, That's George. what I thought. You wake up, you, you pour that bowl of Cheerios, and you're like... Where is Benjamin Britten? like, where is he? <laughs> Six feet under in Aldra. But it seems to me that an opera in English that doesn't necessarily... Excuse me, an opera composer writing in English who doesn't necessarily need choruses, right? Albert Herring, Rape of Lucretia... Mm-hmm. They don't all have to be Billy, productions of Billy Budd. Here is one of the things about Britain, though, is that is it, it is incredibly difficult to put on. Not only are the rights much, much more expensive, the True. rights and parts to rent from from the publishing companies are incredibly expensive because he didn't die that long ago, and they, they they're kept really tightly under lock and key. So there's a there's a there's a, a significant uh, barrier to really small companies putting it on because it, it would eat up most of the budget. Yep. The companies that are happy to put, you know, five people on stage and do Rape of Lucretia, which has more than five people, but not by much. Uh, it, they also take so much musical coaching, so much musical coordination, and what you get is a product, is a connoisseur's product. Yeah, True. And it's also so, so very British. And we're Americans, y'all. Well, it's the orchestral forces, too. I mean, right. when you do Britain... In a piano reduction or a reduced orchestration, I mean, you're really losing out. It's not like Rigoletto, where like you know you hear somebody sing mm-hmm. La Donne Mobile and like yeah, you you've get heard it, it a you million know? times. But if yeah. you haven't heard the complexity of Midsummer Night's Dream, which even is you're one of the out. more that's one of the more approachable Britain operas. It yeah. was actually yeah. the first opera I ever saw right. as, a, really? as, as a child was Midsummer Night's Dream because I really? had friends who were in the fairy chorus. Okay. And it's opera. one of the later pieces he composed, I mm-hmm. think. But right? it, and I remember sitting through parts of it and having absolutely no idea what was going on. <laughs> uh, well, that's mus- Midsummer Night's Dream for you. But, oh. uh, I, but I did it a couple years ago, and it's so funny. You know, there's yeah. so much mm. there that you, can, that, that you can really sell to an audience. I... I think everyone should always be doing Midsummer Night's Dream. Tell us like it is, Weston. Speaking of selling to an audience, the number one most performed opera for the 1718 season in the U.S. was, drumroll please, 
Da, 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 da. Barbara of Seville. Yes, Rossini. Shocked. I thought it was by <laughs> Looney Tunes. I think it is really interesting that uh, Barbara of Seville. Um, I mean, obviously, it was going to be one of the, the top ten. But yeah, I expected it, it lower be, in the top ten, yeah. I have to say. But oh. the top five, yeah. surely. I think, uh, uh, well, just sort of uh, now kind of like throwing in a couple others at you, uh, comparing this to, you know, stuff around the world from opera base, um, uh, Barbara Seville is on there, but it's only number six, right? Uh, the, uh, just to kind of give you the sort of the world breakdown, we got number one at La Traviata, number two, Carmen, three, Magic Flute, four, La Boheme, five, Tosca, and then Barbara Seville. I think there's something that Americans really connect to with comedies particularly, um, that people go, who go to the opera really tend to prefer those, you know I, what I mean? And I do think that Barbara of Seville has built-in marketing from the fact that so many people know it from the Looney Tunes cartoons. Oh, Something that is, I was that is joking a fair about point. earlier. Yeah. But, but, but I think it's valid. I mean, that, that's so, that is so much of the visibility that offers had in pop culture for generations now, honestly, because that's not even our age. It's probably not even our parents' age. Like, I don't remember when that cartoon was made, but it was I, a long time wasn't, ago. Wasn't it late 40s yeah. even? Yeah, so that's yeah, like our grandparents' age. It was a ways <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you look at the top 10 around the world versus America. I mean, all 10 titles are in the same block. Aida is way higher up on the list in terms of world opera productions. It's probably those European houses with more resources that are right. able to produce a work of that size. And in a smaller theater, less looks like more than when you're in a barn like the Met or the War Memorial. Yeah, it, it, it's it's it, it is interesting because a lot of the really big uh, U.S. houses are are really just kind of too big for yeah, you know a, a lot of the things that they try to do, and it ends up becoming underwhelming in those spaces. Um, you are also you also see in sort of the world uh, ones. I think you see a little bit more of the German operas creeping in. You got the Fledermaus at number twelve, Hansel and Gretel at number thirteen. Um, uh, things like that, because you know, just to give it for, it's, again, it's what the Germans 14. like to see, right? And the Germans have got all the opera houses. Well, it is, but even on a world stage, there's still not a Wagner opera that is cracking the top twenty here. Just too big and I'm too unwieldy, too, too expensive. And I bet that if they did, it would be some year where a bunch of a lot of companies that did a lot of performances happened to pick the same Wagner opera, because right. you have to think that you know, if only if if even the biggest opera houses are really only able to do one Wagner opera a year unless they're doing The Ring. And if they all pick different ones, then yeah. that really splits the vote. We'll take a look and see what happens next year, see what's going to overlap. I wonder if As One can crack the top ten next year. Hey, fill up your Moskrug and get ready for a German opera house to be the next victim. Oops, sorry case study of the Dodson scale. That's up next on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Er fürchtete meine Übermacht, weil er nicht verstand, dass ich sie nicht zu irdischem, eigensüchtigem Zweck sammelte. 
It's Opera Box score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Our number in studio, 847-866-WNUR-9678. George Cedarquist here with Matt Cummings. Hello there. And Weston Williams. Guten Tag. Okay, that was not the accent you were doing <laughs> earlier. Why? Why did it it's get spiritual cold heritage. again? By the way, I, here, there we were. We thought we had spring here in Chicago, and then it. Such is the life of full spring, George. It, can, <laughs> it tricks the best of us. That was a clip from the uh, opera Carl the Fifth by Ernst Krenek, and Krenek is not a name that you hear a lot. It is around not. these here parts. One of these days, I'm going to direct Krenek's opera. Johnny spielt auf. Johnny strikes oh, the I band. Love that one. It's a really great piece. But uh, the Bavarian State Opera in Munich has released its 2019-2020 season. Carl V by Krennic is part of that. We're going to run this season through the Dodson's scale. Weston has done the lion's share of the work on this. Oh, and you better thank me. <laughs> Send your <laughs> tweets of thanks. You you can absolutely you can tweet your condolences because we're going to have to put him on an IV. we got columns of spreadsheets <laughs> worth of calculations. Exactly. Here. The uh, the Staatsoper is the largest opera house in Germany. The general manager is Nicholas Bachler, who's been there since 2008, and the general music director Kirill Petrenko. Both of their contracts will be up relatively soon, though. I believe 2021 is the, I believe last, that's, that's... Is the last year. And they're not going to be renewed? They are not being renewed. I think we, yeah. yes, I think we knew that already. Could be a new uh, page for them, certainly. But I think it's kind of interesting to, because we've, we've done a lot of the Dodson scale applied to American operas, because, you know, most of our uh, listeners are American, um, not all of them. Um, but uh, the Bayerische Staatsoper is kind of a, and that's the Bavarian State Opera in Munich, if you didn't know, uh, is kind of a special case uh, because it is the largest opera house in Germany. Uh, and of course, as we mentioned in the last segment, Germany has kind of uh, got a bit of a stranglehold on sort of how the world opera scene is viewed, uh, for better or worse. You know, um, it's a very sort of. Uh, um, the, the, the theater is known for its uh, really outstanding casting uh, uh, to kind of quote Matt Cummings here, drawing from the high musical quality of its performances and the ease for European-based singers to work there. Obviously, uh, you have a lot of singers now who, you know, there's not much point for them to go overseas when they have all this nice stuff happening kind of nearby in their hometown. Right, they can actually see their families instead of being in, in the United States for six weeks which at is, a time. Which is why we haven't seen Jonas Kaufmann over here. It's part of the reason. Years. Well, it's true. Everything is bigger in Bavaria. It's the Texas of Germany, if you will. And the Opera House is is no exception to that. I have a postcard of the... Um, Bavarian State Opera, where the, the photograph is taken on the stage looking into the opera house, but you can see all the like stage machinery around mm. the inside of the proscenium. And I've been there and, and seen some shows there. Actually, a great production of Barber of Seville. Funny oh, enough. Was, um, it a, was it traditional or was it one of the uh, Regie Theater? Do you, know, do you know, Matt? It was absolutely traditional and it was utterly hilarious really? that i mean a really well done barber like well executed barber is is act is legitimately hilarious you, you cannot you cannot That's beat it the one. house does have a very strong regie theater tradition Absolutely. which is german for director's theater right and 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 bachler is really i think to be blamed or be complimented <laughs> for that i mean he has brought directors like hans neuenfels dmitry cherniakov martin Couchet, calixto bieto David Bush, Andreas Kriegenberg, the list for me, like a director, it goes on and on. And with these, the these are directors who work, whose work really pushes the envelope of what right. is, you know, f- what what you can do to interpret an opera, what you can show on stage. I have sometimes wet dreams about the work that these guys <laughs> yeah. produce. I want, I, ju- I just want to do that. Uh, I need the money, but I want to do that. Hey, look, the season is forty four productions. We're not going to yep. be able to get to everyone, but Weston, talk us through some highlights, and Matt and I will chip in. Well, we're going to sort of break this into two chunks here, because uh, the way they're sort of advertising this season is in uh, is by pulling out a certain amount of new productions, which uh, under <laughs> what's, the... What's the tagline? Kill Your Darling. Well, of course it is. Which is very... <laughs> Very German, but it's in English, right? You're not translating that. No, no, it, it, that's that's what it has on uh, on the on the video. That's that a I fi- it's a quote that's usually attributed to William Faulkner, though I'm pretty right. sure that that I is not so. 
not actually the case and it's about how when you're when you're when you're working on artwork you can't keep the parts that are your favorite a lot of the times in order to make the work better you have to kill your darlings right and and push it keep pushing the envelope and that's one of the things i kind of like about uh, the byron schatzoper it's uh it's got this uh cohesive artistic vision uh, that they present in a way that a lot of American companies do not. Uh, and sometimes people can get sick of that aesthetic or even that artistic message, but um, it, I, I love it. It's good stuff. So we're going to kind of break it into sort of two chunks. So there's the repertoire chunk, which is the stuff that they're just like, this is just the normal stuff we do, and that's, you know, like 30-something operas. And <laughs> then the oh, rest this, are going to be the Curie Darlings. <laughs> so we'll start off with the stuff with, with the Darlings that we're not going to kill yet. Um, uh, and as I said, lots and lots of stuff to go through. A couple that kind of uh, stood out to me as kind of interesting. Uh, they're opening up with uh, uh, Alceste um, uh, by Gluck again. Oh, it was just bad and Gluck earlier. I yeah. hope it doesn't get back to <laughs> Ooh, it. it got really cold in here I now. I that yeah. ghost is here. Pretty Yikes. spooky. Um, but uh, that does get some points in the Dodson scale. Five points being before 1830 it's a new production another five points we even have a singer of color casper sing an indian tenor i believe uh who's in that performance and then would you look at that the next one up barbara seville man would here i am hyping that? the bayrosha staatsoper for being so innovative and then they're doing the number one most produced show in the well US. in america it's not yeah. well they're i they're doing Traviata yeah they've, they've which is farther down the well, list well here, here's the thing when you have a season this big you can afford to have a few War horses, and they do. They've got Barbara Seville, they've got Carmen, they've got um, uh, Cosi Fantute, they've got Flatermouse, they've got all those. But they also have Boris Gudinov. Yeah, is... they've got a couple other ones that are that are really not done very often. Uh, you don't usually see Strauss's uh, Die Schweigs am Frau, the Silent yep, Woman. Yep. Uh, or Haydn's Orlando Palladino. That one's a really interesting one to me because Haydn, you you almost never see his operas produced anymore. It's like a weird music history footnote that he also wrote wrote a lot of operas that used to be popular and now no one cares about. Right, and every time I come across one, it's always bizarre and fascinating. He did um, he did one opera where they go to the moon. And just like, yep. how great is that? I love Haydn. I think I prefer Haydn to like Mozart because of the connection to Beethoven. And Beethoven is uh, my 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 yeah, favorite. Not so good for opera though. Fidelio is very yeah. boring. They're doing Fidelio though. Yeah, well, it's um, very so boring. <laughs> so enjoy. Stop criticizing their season, Matt. <laughs> Uh, another kind of interesting one, as we point out, what you heard uh, at the very beginning, that clip uh, from Car- uh, Carl V, Ernst Krennic, very uh, atonal, uh, very, uh, very Krennic. Yeah, one of the um, first 12-tone operas ever written, and he, he yeah. was a... Uh, yeah, it, there's always interesting political statements when you see this opera because it was one that was banned by the Nazis and was yeah. eventually produced, but it had you know quite a... Um, it had quite a troubled history in terms of making it from the page to the stage. And speaking of operas that were not banned by the Nazis, we've got some Wagner. Yeah, they're doing Lohengrin, uh, which loses them five points for being Wagner. Meisterzinger, that's another five points. Parsifal, another five points. However, no ring cycle for them, so uh, that's uh, no competition for the lyric there. Um, there's uh, a, few, uh, a lots of sort of net zeros, I think, in this. There's there's uh, like Rigoletto gets no points, Zalami gets no points, uh, the Schweigsame, uh, Schweigsame Frau gets zero points. There are lots of those like that where you where there's a, a little bit of um, a, a kind of an interesting pick, but it's not so outside not so groundbreaking the, yeah, that, um, it, that it's worth noting right um however from a from a diversity standpoint which is really the the underlying theme of the Dodson scale is diversity in in both uh, repertoire and representation exactly uh and i would also point out that Wozzeck is on here which earns them 50 weston points but no Dodson points it's um, opera box score on <laughs> wnur 89.3 fm and hd we're working our way through the bavarian state operas 2019-2020 season on the Dodson scale. Weston, take us through some of these premieres where inevitably the point totals are going to be higher and they're going right. to shift the whole stat pack for the BSO uh, into the positive. 
Exactly. And so this is the Kill Your Darlings segment. Uh, now, we start off with kind of a, a, a fairly tame one as far as, new, as you know, new productions go. It's not totally outside the ballpark of reasonability. It's Die Tote Stadt by Eric Korngold, um, who was born on my birthday, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I have a special connection. Right on. Um, and they, get, they only get five points for that because it's just a new production. There's nothing else really special about it. Jonas Kaufmann's in it, but he doesn't get any points. Uh, and then we have kind of an interesting one for me. I think this one's probably the highlight of the season for me. This would be the one where if I were to get a bunch of money sent my way, um, if you donate to the show and send <laughs> for the explicit purposes of sending me to Bavaria, this is the one I want to see. The Snow Queen by Hans Abrahamson, uh, which is a new production uh, world, uh, it's not a world premiere, but it will come out within a couple months of the world premiere, uh, which is going to be in uh, Denmark, I believe. And so this is the world premiere at a at a top tier house. I mean, no offense to Denmark, but this is a uh, th- this this is the big leagues that that they're coming out swinging in. This is uh, this one is going to have Barbara Hannigan in a uh, in a. A uh, fairly uh, outstanding role, I'm sure. Barbara Hannigan has collaborated with Abrahamson a couple of times, uh, and ver- with very interesting uh, results. And this is his full first full uh, opera. So I, this is the one that I think is going to be sort of the highlight from um, from a Western standpoint, aside from Wozzeck. Um <laughs> And then we've got uh, Bluebeard's Castle, uh, which. Uh, I love Bluebeard's Castle. And they're um, doing that as a double bill with the Concerto for Orchestra. Which is interesting. I wonder yeah. if they're going to do anything with... Uh, with uh, Maybe stage a dance? I think that would be great. I, 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 I don't know if they want to or I not. Mean, the, the, oh, Katie Mitchell, who's a British director of female, is directing that production. It doesn't surprise me, knowing her aesthetic, which is definitely always reinventing the form. She's staged a number of oratorios, so it doesn't surprise me that she yeah. would take this piece, and I can't wait to see her feminist take on it that would be done with something like yeah. an orchestral and, concert. And notably, that production has both a, a female director and conductor leading the yeah, orchestra. Yeah, one, one of the few in both of those categories, uh, which we'll kind of talk about in sort of the, the wrap-up and <laughs> where I think they did well and where I think they did not do so well. Uh, and then we have kind of an unusual Verdi, Imazanidet, uh, Dieri, that was not on the top twenty-five. It is of not. Opera. No, it's probably not even in the top twenty-five Verdi operas. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> I, I've never heard this opera. I know nothing about it, but it's a new production, and they get five points for it, despite it being Verdi. So you know, good luck. I, I mean, I know. I think I can. I can pull out some uh, some opera history arc, arcane facts about it, but it's really not. <laughs> okay, it's not even worth Let, that. Let's throw over this next piece, the Seven Deaths of Maria Callas. Let's throw this one over to Cummings. Yeah, and, so this is yeah. a Marina. See if he can talk about this thing without going purple. This is a Marina Abramovich project, and uh, I recognize that name because uh, she is a prolific performance artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you were going to say pain in the ass. I. <laughs> I wasn't going to, but uh, she definitely some of her work is uh, non-traditional. Uh, so I looked up <laughs> some of her more famous projects include Breathing In, Breathing Out, where she and her colleague uh, locked lips and only breathed from the exhalations of one another. And they did that until they passed out, which took, <laughs> a, according to Wikipedia, took 17 uh, minutes. Okay, That Amazing. is not what Maria Callas ever did, I don't believe. Uh, well. So this this is a video. It's a multimedia project. It's part video right. Part uh, opera, they're writing new music, they're writing new dialogue, mm-hmm. it's being directed, it's being staged. I tried to find out more information besides what was on the website, and really there's not a lot out there about what it's going to involve. And I'm they sure probably that's on... don't know what it, they're probably <laughs> yeah. doing this thing. <laughs> yeah. right the, the, now. The, we, what we know is there will be clips from various famous Kalas roles in there. Um, there's going to be a new music by Marco, oh, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Niko Dijevic, uh, or perhaps Njevic. Probably something like uh, that. Something like that. I believe he's a Serbian composer. Eastern and Marina Abramovic is also Serbian. So yes, that, uh, that makes sense. Uh, it's a world premiere, of course, uh, when you, it's, uh, it's brand new. Um, uh, Abramovic also was a co-librettist, so she gets some points for that. Also director. Uh, and it's just, uh, and Willem Dafoe is gonna be in this. Uh, are you sure about that? It's basically Spider Man. It's basically Spider Man. I, I, I think he's probably gonna star in some of the film segments. I doubt he's gonna be actually on stage, but uh, if he is, I would desperately like to see that one as well. It also sounds right to me that he's involved, but I, I am not sure in what capacity. And 
Maybe neither is he, to be truly honest. <laughs> he probably has no idea. He <laughs> thinks it's Spider-Man 4 or something. Uh, this, uh, But I should say that because it's the world premiere and it's all this uh, weird, different stuff happening, this one production earns them 41 points on the Dodson scale. That is more than many opera companies earn in their entire season. Well, it turns out that's going to be uh, a quarter of their subtotal without season deductions once you add in Castrum Pollux by Rameau, right. the new production of Verdi's Falstaff, mm-hmm. and the uh, Ambrose Thomas opera Mignon. Thomas, of course, known best for uh, Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet, probably. yeah. Um, that's being directed by uh, Christian Lutz, who is married to Jonas Kaufman. Oh, I didn't know that. It's not who you know, it's who you know. <laughs> but uh, so if we look at it from That's here. That's not really fair to her talents, George. <laughs> she can be super talented, too. She just knows the right people. That's all. That's true. <laughs> if you look at the point total so far, we have about uh, 187 points, which sounds really impressive. But once you realize that there's 44 operas, divide that uh, uh, from 187, you get less than four points per show, which is a little bit less impressive. Um, and then, of course, we get into the deductions. Yeah, so a lot of repeats of, of famous war horses, Carmen Traviata, Bohem, all showing up on there, a couple of Rossini's. Puccini's more than one Mozart, more than one Verdi. You, I mean, when you have a, again, when you have a season this large, and when you're really trying to introduce variety, sonic variety, right. you're gonna have repeats here. Right. Uh, we we end up with a grand total of something like 137 yeah, points. Yeah, they lose 50 points for all the deductions, but their grand total is 137. And by my calculations just now, I be- I believe that the total from the Kill Your Darlings premiere section is something like 113. <laughs> so. That's a that that's the, really the bulk of of where these points are coming from. Yeah, a lot of these points I should say are coming from uh, smaller parts with singers of colors. Not a lot of main roles with singers of colors, except for uh, Eileen Perez, who's going to be doing Bohem. Uh, shout out to Toby for not being here for that. Um, and um, uh, and uh, but y- one of the trends I noticed as I was doing this is that. Not a lot of women directors. No, not leader, a lot of women. Uh, leadership conductors. is still a man's role. It's still a man's world over here, in even in uh, Bavaria, which is, you know, they they're really breaking new ground in a lot of in a lot of ways, but not in terms of who is leading either the productions or the. Or the orchestra, with with several notable exceptions, but well, exactly. Well, I think I think I just think it's ridiculous that you have a forty-four opera season where a lot of the operas have multiple conductors because they're doing it over such a long period of time, and you only have two women conductors in the entire season. That, I think, is just kind of unacceptable and, frankly, kind of feels like you're, they're sweeping it under the rug because you can hide them in the pit and no one's going to know. You know, uh, it's, a, it's, a little bit, it's a little harder to dodge these kinds of things when you're talking about casting of people on stage but when you're talking about those leadership positions in sort of the backstage area, I do think that they kind of fall down uh, on the diversity portion of the uh, Dodson scale. I wish I could go. That's all I yeah. can say is that I wish I could go and see some of this stuff. But, of course, there is some um, HD broadcasts. Yes, as a matter of fact, this is one of the things I was going to mention earlier. Um, uh, one of the things that makes Staatsoper, uh, 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 the Bavarian State Opera, a little bit more relevant to the non-German uh, audiences is that they do do these uh, broadcasts over the internet on Staatsoper.tv of a lot of their operas for free, and I, I love them. They're great. Have you been playing Mozart to your Manchego? That's up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, 
Monday evening quarterback and crunching the numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendanten Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Support continues for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra musicians who are on strike, including the likes of conductor Daniel Barenboim, Melissa Kleinbart, who's the chair of the Players Committee of the San Francisco Symphony, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. The legendary... Edita Gruberova makes her farewell to stage opera this week, portraying one of her specialties, Queen Elizabeth and Donizetti's Roberto Devera. The 72-year-old Slovakian coloratura soprano first came to international attention singing the role of Zerbinetta at the Vienna State Opera in 1973. Christina Scheppelmann has been appointed the first female general director of Seattle Opera. Born in Germany and fluent in five languages, She's the current artistic leader of the Grand Teatro del Lecio in Barcelona. Last Saturday, Lyric Opera of Chicago honored the career of its creative consultant, Oliver Camacho. No, sorry, Renee Fleming, marking 25 years since her debut as Carlisle Floyd's Susanna Radonofsky, Brownlee, Owens, Van Horn, Kelsey, and the Ryan Opera Center Ensemble joined Fleming with the orchestra conducted by Patrick Summers. OBS interview ghost and central region winner of the Met National Council auditions, Elena Vialon, will compete in the finals on March 31st. For these singers and those of you who are friends with singers, the words profesional, spelled P-R-O-F-E-A-S-I-O-N-A-L, profesional, professional, has officially entered the Urban Dictionary. Some poor guy complained in the new form for classical singers that he was shocked to see singers using piano vocal scores. Lesson learned the classical singer's form, not a safe space. Mozart might be good for your baby, apparently not so good for your cheese. An experiment called Cheese and Surround Sound, conducted by researchers at Bayern University of the Arts in Switzerland, finds that in a blind taste test, Emmentaler cheese wheels exposed to hip-hop, specifically a tribe called Quest, beat out cheese that listened to the magic flute. Exit stage right, one of the most beloved singing actresses of her generation, mezzo-soprano Melissa Parks, has passed away. Tributes pouring in from the singer community, and we here at Opera Box Score offer our heartfelt condolences. And on this day, March 25th, we celebrate the anniversary of the birthdays of opera composers Johann Adolf Hasse, 1699, and Bella Bartok in 1881. Birthdays also conductor Arturo Toscanini, 1867, soprano Magda Olivero in 1910, and baritone Mario Sereni in 1928. This date also marks first performances of Gilbert and Sullivan's Trial by Jury and Jack Beeson's opera Lizzie Borden in 1965. That is your two minute drill. You just heard that clip of Edita Gruborova singing uh, the the finale of Roberto Devera from 2005. She can still she was still singing that opera as of uh, last week. Uh, Edita Gruborova made her professional debut at 1968. Isn't that in 1968? Oh, Isn't goodness. that insane? She's been singing opera and basically all of the most difficult soprano roles in any opera for the last 50 years. And I wonder if our mystery caller is going to have something to say about that, Matt. I'm Weston. here. Thank you so much, Matt, for that outro. That was exactly right. That was from uh, the Bayerische Staatsoper 2005 production, the Christoph Loy production, which was panned by critics and audiences for being a very ugly production. But 
it really uh, shows Kuburova's acting skills. Uh, it's one of the most incredible finales of an opera where um, Elizabeth abdicates to whoever it is, her nephew or something. And, um, <laughs> yeah, she takes off her wig, and underneath you see a bald cap with all this, like, really wispy, like, ugly, you know, fine hair, and she looks horrible on stage. I mean, she really is the opposite of glamorous, and it's a really brave, you know, thing to do, obviously, like, she could care less, you know, she's still getting the paycheck, but, you know, it was a, a really shocking, beautiful finale, or a shocking finale to an opera that is really dramatic, one of my favorite Donizetti operas. I just want to say that, like, Donizetti is um, Kuberopa's specialty, and uh, starting from, you know, Lucia, which is one of her calling card roles, she really did explore the entire Donizetti opera, which is like, I don't know, 90 operas or something, something like, like that. that. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, and, many... Uh, also a popular Queen of the Night in Zerbinetta, but really the bel canto had her heart, I would say. Right, Oliver? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, getting back to some of those um, two-minute drill items, wouldn't it be great to see a, a double feature of Trial by Jury and Lizzie Borden? Oh, yeah, du- double that's actually a super good idea. <laughs> George, write it down in your little notebook. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I love GNS. <sighs> Along with the best of them, I don't know if I could stomach <laughs> both of those in one sitting. <laughs> so, Matt, I wanted to pass it over to you to talk a little bit about the classical singers' form and like what's that all about for people who are not singers <laughs> and what what one can find over there. So, the the classical singer forum is definitely an irreverent take on what it's like to be a professional singer. It's it's mm. a combination of professional advice, uh, venting, dirty jokes, and you know uh, whatever whatever people are coming out because of the full moon, I would say is pretty accurate. So yeah. basically what we do here on this show. More or less, but and, with and much more profanity. <laughs> yeah, with, with, with memes and with the occasional uh, neophyte asking the most basic question about repertoire, like, what's an Italian aria for a tenor? <laughs> so there was a guy who, who, who posted a screed, basically, talking about how embarrassing it was that singers only learn their 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 music from vocal scores, piano vocal scores, without really recognizing what all of the instruments are doing at the same time. <laughs> and it turned into a lot of Photoshop pictures of people uh, not being able to hold up piano uh, full orchestral <laughs> scores. Because the reason why people make vocal scores is for them to be workable. And usually... <laughs> Most of the information can either easily be written into a vocal score by studying the full score, listening to a recording, or it's already noted what what instrument is playing the lines that you have in the reduction there. But this comment thread just would not quit. There's over a over a thousand. There's over a thousand comments. I went today and it was some. It was it was over eleven hundred even, and that's not even counting the separate posts that are spinoffs of memes and parodies that just replace a couple words. Uh, some of which themselves have hundreds of likes. It's it's <laughs> so insane. The, the, one of the takeaways is that uh, this guy, he's, English is probably not his first language, and he misspelled the word uh, professional. He said professional. And he also misspelled the word reduction. He spelled it with a Y instead of the U. And so there are all these new memes that are created about being a professional means that you have your full, you know, uh, <laughs> orchestral score. You know? <laughs> and, get, uh, yeah, get, it, get it on a T-shirt, man. Oh man, we will add it to our that. merch page. Yeah. Sure. So, anyway, so if you have any singers in your Facebook circle and you're trying to figure out why you keep saying the word professional as a as a meme or as like a hashtag, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, the the best uh, story of the week for me, however, uh, is this Mozart cheese story because I love cheese. I like Mozart. Why not put them together? And here's a study that tells me turns n- out not, not such to a good put idea. Them together. <laughs> uh, what what do you think would make like the best uh, uh, cheese uh, uh, to opera pairing? Oh, probably some double Gloucester or yeah. something. Oh, yeah. Some, some, some. Does re- it need to be a cheesier opera? It, like, it, do we it, need to get Lachme up there or <laughs> something that's just all schmaltz? I don't think we should be so cavalier about making these cheese pairings with wine. I think that it really does take like a true craftsman, somebody who's had time to think about it and maybe taste the cheeses with each selection. So let's save that question for another episode. <laughs> Oliver, are you gonna are you gonna make a list for us and put it on the website for us? Exactly. Well maybe there'll be like a new there's actually a um, a concert series um, that was invented by our friend Dan Teat, who was a guest on the show, who does um, wine pairings with like songs, like song recitals and wine pairings simultaneously. So 
You get a different glass each composer or something like that. So. I have a suspicion that Oliver, that you're at home right now with a little piece <laughs> of cheese and a huge glass what, of wine. What cheese I, and wine would you pair with Opera Box score, actually, Oliver? Actually, the reason why I'm at home and not the studio is because I'm making a bolognese and it takes two days. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to have, I'm trying to make dinner for tomorrow, and it means that I need to be home tonight. Great. Well, we'll be over uh, in about forty-five minutes. But I, I wanted to. Well, it won't be ready till tomorrow. That I get off the line. That um, I went to the Renee Fleming gala at Lyric Opera. And this thing has been hyped for quite a while now. And it's obviously been on their calendar for a while. Um, the resulting show was lovely. Everybody sang their hearts out and it was everybody performed so beautifully. But the program itself was a little bit kind of mishmash. Um, there were three lower voiced males with Quinn Kelsey, Christian Van Horn, and Eric Owens. And they're obviously very different artists, but as far as like, you know, variety of the type of repertoire we would get from those three singers, not so much. Um, Larry Brownlee sang Unaura Morosa, which, you know, he sang the poop out of it and it was beautiful, but I don't really associate him with Mozart. He did come out and sing a second aria, which was Amaze Ami. A little uh, more the in the wheelhouse there. Yeah. The person who did steal the show, though, with both of her selections was Sandra Rodvanovsky. Uh, she started with BC Darte and it was easily the most like, enthusiastic applause of the night. Hmm. And then in the second half, she sang Ain't It a Pretty Night, which coincidentally uh, is the role that she made her debut with, Susanna, Carlos with Susanna, and also the same role that um, Renee Fleming made her lyric opera debut with. So that was a little nod towards Renee Fleming. And I have to say that I've heard Ain't It a Pretty Night sung, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, because it's something sure. that you hear a lot in college. It's like an English aria and whatnot. Um, and I'm just so used to hearing singers just sing it and maybe have a little bit of trouble adding weight uh, in the very hard climactic phrases. And we had the orchestra on stage. It was actually a really beautiful, you know, design. They had like the band shell and you could see all the players and it made everybody sound gorgeous, but it also made everybody's voice sizes very easy to suss out. And Sandra Rabinowski's voice is effing huge. And <laughs> I've, I've never heard... Ain't It a Pretty Night, sung better, and with so much passion. And when it was time for those two climactic phrases, man, that was a lot of sound coming out of her. It was, it was incredible. And I don't even know if the audience appreciates as, how hard that aria is. When Probably not. Just like, well, <laughs> yeah, but it was really, really virtuosic singing. So she gets the prize. That's a great report. Hey, my friend, thank you so much for calling in, chipping yeah. in in the conversation. Appreciate it. Good luck on that pasta sauce. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Have a good you guys. <laughs> uh, it's making me hungry. These, I know. These secret callers, they, they, uh, they mess us up. I will say before we move on and, and wrap this show up, I have been impressed by other musicians' response to the CSO strike and the, the right. camaraderie. I mean, Nancy Pelosi... Look, she has no skin in the game. She has absolutely nothing to prove. And yet she can come out and she says, quote, it is an honor to send my greetings to the men and women of the Chicago Federation of Musicians. Every day, your incredible talents and hard work enrich the community. Democrats stand in solidarity with you in asking the Chicago Symphony to come to the table with respect for the value of your work, end quote. I mean, I, I don't care anymore now because they canceled my uh, performance of Bluebeard's Castle. So. Well, you'll just have to go oh, to bitter. you'll just have to go to Munich and see theirs. Yeah, I, just, I go. gotta do it. Speaking of which, you can donate to Opera Box Score and send me to Munich. <laughs> We're not gonna spend money on that. I'll call in. I'll call in and give you a report on how it goes. Well, we haven't hyped it up too much, but we do have the um, event with the. Lyric Young Professionals. Triviata. Yes, that's going to be, um, oh gosh, I'm going to get the date wrong on our night. Uh, April. Wednesday, April 24th. There it is. Wednesday, April 24th. We will be hosting uh, a sort of a pub style trivia. There's going to be drinks, hors d'oeuvres, and us. At least one of those things should be appealing to you if you're listening right now. Uh, and it's probably not us, but still come anyway. It should be a lot of fun. We'll put a link on our website, operaboxscore.com. It's, it's going to be a total hoot. And even if you. <laughs> If you live in the Chicago area, really consider coming. A great trivia to be had. Lots of fun to be had. You can see what Tobias Wright looks like in person. <laughs> He's a lot more hairy than you would expect. Not really? If you've been listening to the ads. No, I would, I would have. Uh, I would have. I would have said the contrary. Yeah, sir. Actually, all right. Let's wrap it up. 
Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. It's been a great show. Great to have the three of us. This is what I love about the show is that with five of us on the bench, there's always a new combination mm, mm-hmm. of us on the roster that can a come new in pairing. And, and yeah, I've never sat in this chair before. I don't yeah. think. Maybe <laughs> only once. Matt's at mic one. Well, Matt, because you're at mic one, which is usually Oliver's seat, do you want to go first with a good call, bad call? Yeah, sure thing. My good call is to check out uh, Devalcuted this Saturday, uh, either in at Met HD or on the radio broadcast. The cast features Christine Gerke, Jamie Barton, Greer Grimsley, and Günther Groisbeck, which is about as good of a cast as I can possibly imagine. And I've got a good call as well. Going back to the first segment where we we're talking about the Bayerische Staatsoper, or the second segment, actually. Uh, there is going to be a broadcast of La Fanchula del West at Staatsoper.tv. That's S-T-A-A-T-S-O-P-E-R.tv, if you don't speak German. On Sunday at 7 p.m. Munich time, so just kind of plug into Google whenever that is for you, uh, and you can kind of get a sense of what uh, uh, what the Bavarian State Opera does and how they uh, present themselves to the world. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra, with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review if you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera over some good old craft singles. We're back on April 1st at 9 p.m. Central. We're going to get foolish and funny and wacky and wild. And you're going to get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on that. Join us. April is uh, shaping up to be a really great month on this show. Some big interviews coming up. The event with the Lyric Young Professionals as well. Please stay in touch with us. Follow what we're doing. And, of course, listen to the show. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.